Chapter 17 of The Life of Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 17 The Poet in Prison. Written by one of the warders in Reading Jail. Footnote This chapter has been contributed to this biography by a man who was a warder in Reading Jail at the time of Oscar Wilde's imprisonment there. The express condition under which it was contributed was that it should be printed exactly as it stood in the manuscript, with no alteration of a single phrase or word or expression. This condition has been faithfully observed, and the chapter has been printed as it was written. End footnote. There are supreme moments in the lives of men as there are events in the histories of nations which mark epochs and stand out in bold relief from the many others which go to make up the sum total of their existence. Those moments in the life of Mr. Wilde were when he stepped out of the dock at the Old Bailey, a ruined man, and with a sentence of two years' imprisonment hanging over his unfortunate head. There are days, months, and years in the lives of some men which to them are an eternity. For them the hand of time has ceased to move, the clock no longer strikes the recurring hour. For them there is no dawn, there is no day. Occasionally, perhaps, a twilight. For, as the adage has it, hope springs eternal in the human breast. They live through one long, bewildering night. A night of terror, a night of appalling darkness, unrelieved by a single star, a night of misery, a night of despair. Two years' imprisonment meant to the poet one long dreary night, a night spent in an inferno, a night without variation, a night without dreams. No dreams but nightmares, rendered the more ghastly because of their terrible reality. From them there was no awakening. Nightmares wherein men were flogged, wherein men were executed. Others, it may be urged, have been in prison before the poet, others since and others now. Aye, yes, but they were not poets. They are not poets in the sense he was. Their sufferings, no doubt, are great, but his were greater. Reared in the lap of luxury, living in an atmosphere of culture and refinement, he, the apostle of aestheticism, was suddenly hurled from the proud pinnacle on which his genius had placed him, and, without passing through any intermediate stage, found himself encased amid walls of iron and surrounded by bars of steel. He who formerly devoted himself to the producing of the highest works of art was now shredding tarred ropes in a dismal cell. He, with a poet's weakness for adornment, was now attired in the garb of gloomy grey taken from a prison wardrobe. He, to whom expression was life, nay, more than life itself, was suddenly reduced to a silence more silent than the grave, and he who had made a name glorious in the world of literature had now only a number. His was worse than suffering, his was a tragedy, and one of the greatest that the 19th century has to record. For the first 18 months of his imprisonment, 
all the rigours of the system were applied to him relentlessly. He had to pick his quantity of oakum, or bear the punishment that was sure to follow. Turn the monotonous crank, along with his fellows, by which the prison was supplied with water. Read the silly books from the library, or pace his cell, a prey to his own sad thoughts, until his health broke down under the unnatural strain, and, to prevent his being sent to a madhouse, he was allowed the privilege of having a limited number of books, which were sent by friends, and which afterwards found a place amongst others less abstruse on the shelves of the prison library. Later he was allowed a more important privilege, the privilege of writing, and to this concession the world owes de profundis. He wrote mostly in the evenings, when he knew he would be undisturbed. In his cell were two wooden trestles, across which he placed his plank bed. This was his table, and as he himself observed, it was a very good table too. His tins he kept scrupulously clean, and in the mornings, after he had arranged them in their regulated order, he would step back and view them with an air of childlike complacency. He was dreadfully distressed because he could not polish his shoes or brush his hair. If I could but feel clean, he said, I should not feel so utterly miserable. Oh, these awful bristles, touching his chin, are horrid. Before leaving his cell to see a visitor, he was always careful to conceal, as far as possible, his unshaven chin by means of his red handkerchief. He showed great agitation when a visitor was announced. For I never know, he said, what fresh sorrow may not have entered my life, and is in this manner born to me, so that I may carry it to my cell and place it in my already overstocked storehouse, which is my heart. My heart is my storehouse of sorrow. It was during the latter part of the poet's imprisonment that the order was issued for first offenders to be kept apart from the other prisoners. They were distinguished by two red stars, one of which was on the jacket and the other worn on the cap, and in consequence were known as star-class men. The order, not being retrospective, did not apply to the poet, and in consequence he, like the remainder, had to stand with his face to the wall when any of the star class were passing in his vicinity. The framers of the order were, no doubt, actuated by the best of motives, but its too literal interpretation caused it to look rather ludicrous. I have seen the poet having to stand with his face to the wall while a villainous-looking ruffian, who had been convicted for half-killing his poor wife, passed him. In fact, nearly every day he was forced to assume this undignified position, which might have been obviated but for the crass stupidity of officialdom. In church, the poet seemed to suffer from ennui. He sat in a listless attitude with his elbow resting on the back of his chair, his legs crossed, and gazed dreamily around him and above him. There were times when he was so oblivious of his surroundings, so lost in reverie, that it required a friendly nudge from one of the lost sheep beside him to remind him that a hymn had been given out, 
and that he must rise and sing, or at least appear to sing, his praises unto God. When the chaplain was addressing his shorn and grey-garbed flock, telling them how wicked they all were, and how thankful they should all be that they lived in a Christian country, where a paternal government was as anxious for the welfare of their souls as for the safe-keeping of their miserable bodies, that society did not wish to punish them, although they had erred and sinned against society, that they were undergoing a process of purification, that their prison was their purgatory, from which they could emerge as pure and spotless as though they had never sinned at all, that if they did so, society would meet and welcome them with open arms, that they were the prodigal sons of the community, and that the community, against which they had previously sinned, was fattening calves to feast them, if they would but undertake to return to the fold and become good citizens. The poet would smile, but not his usual smile. This was a cynical smile, a disbelieving smile, and often it showed despair. I long to rise in my place and cry out, said he, and tell the poor disinherited wretches around me that it is not so, to tell them that they are society's victims, and that society has nothing to offer them but starvation in the streets, or starvation and cruelty in prison. I have often wondered why he never did cry out, why he was able to continue day after day the dull slow round of a wearisome existence, an existence of sorrow, sorrow benumbed by its awful monotony, an existence of pain, an existence of death. But he faithfully obeyed the laws and conscientiously observed the rules prescribed by society for those whom it consigns to the abodes of sorrow. I understand he was punished once for talking. I have no personal knowledge of the circumstance, but I know that it would be almost a miracle for one to serve two years' imprisonment without once being reported. Some of the rules are made with no other object than to be broken, so that an excuse may be found for inflicting additional punishment. Footnote. The writer, it should be remembered, is a prison warder. End of footnote. However, he could not have been punished by solitary confinement for 15 days, as has been stated. A governor is not empowered to give more than three days. But 24 hours bread and water is the usual punishment for talking, and, if it be the first offence, the delinquent is generally let off with a caution. During the period of his incarceration, the poet suffered in health, but he seldom complained to the doctor. He was afraid of doing so lest he should be sent to the sick ward. He preferred the seclusion of his cell. There he could think aloud without attracting the glances or the undertone comments of the less mobile-minded. There he could be alone, alone with the spectre of his past, alone with his books, alone with his God. When I entered his cell on a certain bleak raw morning in early March, I found him still in bed. This was unusual, and so I expressed surprise. I've had a bad night, he explained. Pains in my inside which I think must be cramp, and my head seems splitting. 
I asked whether he had better not report sick. No, he said, not for anything. I shall be better, perhaps, as the day advances. Come back in a few minutes when I will be up. I returned to his cell a few minutes afterwards and found he was up, but looking so dreadfully ill that I again advised him to see the doctor. He declined, however, saying he would be all right when he had had something warm to drink. I knew that in the ordinary course of events he would have nothing for at least another hour, so I resolved to find something to give him in the meanwhile myself. I hastened off and warmed up some beef tea poured it into a bottle, placed the bottle inside my jacket, and returned towards his cell. While ascending the staircase, the bottle slipped between my shirt and skin. It was very hot. I knew that there was an unoccupied cell on the next landing, and I determined to go there and withdraw the bottle from its painful position. But at that moment, a voice called me from the central hall below. I looked down and saw the chief warder. He beckoned me towards him. I went back. He wished to speak concerning a discrepancy in the previous night's muster report. I attempted to elucidate the mystery of two prisoners being in the prison who had no claim on its hospitality. I am afraid I threw but little light on the mystery. I was in frightful agony. The hot bottle burned against my breast like molten lead. I have said there are supreme moments in the lives of men. Those were supreme moments to me. I could have cried out in my agony, but dared not. The cold, damp beads of perspiration gathered on my brow. I writhed and twisted in all manners of ways to ease myself of the dreadful thing, but in vain. I could not shift that infernal bottle, try as I might. It lay there against my breast like a hot poultice, but hotter than any poultice that was ever made by a cantankerous mother or by a cantankerous nurse. And the strange thing about it was that the longer it lay, the hotter it became. The chief eyed me curiously. I believe he thought I had been drinking. I know I was incoherent enough for anything. At last he walked off and left me, for which I felt truly thankful. I bounded up the iron stairs and entered the poet's cell, and, pulling out the burning bottle, I related, amid gasps and imprecations, my awful experience. The poet smiled while the tale was being told, then laughed, actually laughed. I had never seen him laugh naturally before, and with the same qualification I may add that I never saw him laugh again. I felt angry because he laughed. I told him so. I said it was poor reward for all I had undergone to be laughed at. And, so saying, I came out and closed the door. I closed it with a bang. When I took him his breakfast, he looked the picture of contrition. He said he wouldn't touch it unless I promised to forgive him. Not even the cocoa? I asked. Not even the cocoa, he replied, and he looked at it longingly. Well, rather than starve you, I'll forgive you. And supposing I laugh again, said he with a smile. I shan't forgive you again, I said. The following morning he handed me a sheet of foolscap blue official paper. Here is something, said he, 
which is not of much value now, but probably, maybe, if you keep it long enough. I had no opportunity of reading then, but when I had read it, I was struck by the power and beauty of its expression. It was headed, An Apology, and written in his old, original and racy style. The flow of subtle humour, the wit and charm of the many epigrams, the naivety contained in some of the personal allusions, were captivating. As a lover of style, I was captivated and told him so. Ah, said he, I never thought to resume that style again. I had left it behind me as a thing of the past. But yesterday morning I laughed, which showed my perversity, for I really felt sorry for you. I did not mean to laugh. I had vowed never to laugh again. Then I thought it fitting when I had broken one vow to break the other also. I had made two, and I broke both, but now I have made them again. I never intend to laugh, nor do I intend ever again to write anything calculated to produce laughter in others. I am no longer the Sidious of comedy. I have sworn solemnly to dedicate my life to tragedy. If I write any more books, it will be to form a library of lamentations. They will be written in a style begotten of sorrow and in sentences composed in solitude and punctuated by tears. They will be written exclusively for those who have suffered or are suffering. I understand them, and they will understand me. I shall be an enigma to the world of pleasure, but a mouthpiece for the world of pain. In conversation the poet was always perfectly rational. His every action during the day was rational, but when left to himself in the evening he underwent a transformation, or it might be more appropriate to term it a transfiguration. It was when he was alone in his cell, when the doors were double-locked, when the gas was flickering, when the shadows of night were falling, when all was quiet, when all was dead. The grim and watchful warder moves around with velvety tread. There is a still and awful silence, a silence in the warder's slippers, a silence in the cells, a silence in the air. The dark, sombre shadow stops at the door of each living sepulchre and gazes in. He peers through the aperture of glass to satisfy himself that the tomb has not become too realistic, that it still contains the living, that none have dared to cheat the law, have dared to baffle justice. The view is nearly the same in each, a drab and ghostly figure seated on a stool, finishing the day's task, which will be collected at the hour of eight, or, if he has already finished his work, he sits staring with vacant eyes into vacancy, or looks for consolation in the book of common prayer. The watching figure glides on, now stops, peers into another cell near the end of the corridor. The cell is marked C-3-3. It is the cell of the poet. Around the whole circle of living sepulchres no sight like this, no sight more poignant, no sight more awe-inspiring, no sight more terrible. The poet is now alone, alone with the gods, alone with the muse. He is pacing his cell. One, two, three. Three steps when he has to turn. Three steps and turn again. 
his hands behind his back, a wrist encircled by a hand, and thus backwards and forwards, to and fro he goes, his head thrown back, smiling. But heavens, what a smile! His eyes, those wonderful eyes, are fairly dancing. Now they're looking towards the ceiling, but far beyond the ceiling, looking even beyond the depths of airy space, looking into the infinite. Now he laughs. What a laugh! Piercing, poignant, bitter, all and more are condensed in that awful laugh. His powerful imagination is at work. Though his body is in fetters, his soul is free, for who can chain the soul of a poet? It roams on high and mighty altitudes, high above the haunts of men. Then higher yet, above the silvery clouds, it soars and finds a resting place among the pale shadows of the moon. Then back to earth it comes with one fell stroke, as lightning flashed from heaven, back through the iron window, back to the prison cell. Hush, he speaks, he breathes the sacred name of mother, and calls his wife by name. He sheds a tear, it glistens on his cheek, when, lo, an angel comes and the tear evaporates. And thus his life, whate'er he may have done, was purged from his account by one hot tear, that trickled from a heart redeemed and purified by suffering. But hark, he speaks again, he addresses an imaginary visitor, with hands outstretched towards his little stool. Long, long ago, in boyhood's days, I had fond ambition. I intended to reform the world and alter its condition. I raised myself, through art alone, to a very high position. And now, my friend, you see me, a poor victim of attrition. He laughs again and repeats the last few words. A victim of attrition, a pitiless attrition. He turns away and resumes his melancholy walk, then stops once more before his visionary visitor and raises his finger. The world, he says with a tinge of egotism, is not so solid after all. I can shake it with an epigram and convulse it with a song. He laughs once more, then sinks upon the prison stool and bows his head and here we leave him to think his thoughts alone. Alone. Let no one mock those nightly scenes and say the poet was not sincere. In prison he was the very soul of sincerity, and remember, no man can wear a mask in prison. You may deceive the governor, you may deceive the chaplain, you may deceive the doctor, but you cannot deceive the warder. His eye is upon you when no other eye sees you, during your hours of sleep as well as during your hours of wakefulness. What the poet was before he went to prison, I care not. What he may have been after he left prison, I know not. One thing I know, however, that while in prison he lived the life of a saint, or as near that holy state as poor mortal can ever hope to attain. His gentle smile of sweet sincerity was something to remember. 
It must have been a smile like this that Bunyan wore as he lay in Bedford jail dreaming his wonderful dreams. It must have been a similar smile that illumined the noble face of St. Francis of Assisi when he spoke of his brother the wind and his sister the rain. Had Hugo been an artist with the brush, as he was artist with the pen, he would have depicted such a smile as shimmering over the features of the good bishop when he told his great white lie to save poor Jean Valjean. And who can say that the Prince of Peace himself would have considered such a smile unworthy of his countenance as he uttered the sweet words of invitation to the little children whom the disciples wished to keep away. One can remember such a smile, although one's pen fails to describe its sweetness, as it fails to describe the sweet perfume of the rose. It was a smile of resignation, a smile of benevolence, a smile of innocence, a smile of love. Farewell, brave heart. May your sleep be as peaceful as your smile. May the angels hover around your tomb in death as they hovered around your tomb in life. And, had you been destitute of every other attribute that goes to make the perfect man, that smile alone would have served you as your passport through the gates of paradise and onwards to the great white throne. Farewell. I have kept my promise. I have remembered you during all the years that have intervened since that memorable day we shook hands and parted in your cold and cheerless cell. You asked me to think of you sometimes. I have thought of you always. Scarcely one single day has passed since then that I have not thought of you. You who were at once my prisoner and my friend. End of chapter 17